Amen. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, church family. You can be seated here today. Well, thank you all for gathering with us here on this Lord's Day as the people of Mission Church have gathered at this building uh, to worship the person and work of Jesus, to lift high the name and the work and the accomplishments of our King Jesus. Uh, my name is Eric Baker, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mission, and very thankful to be a part and to be a member here at Mission Church. And so I would ask you this morning, as we're preaching through this text, that you would keep your, your Bible open, that you would keep your device open, that you would follow along with me as we travel through these passages. Uh, this summer, we began a sermon series uh, that we will do in the summers called Summer in the Psalms. And over the last two weeks, we've done the introduction to the entire book of Psalms called uh, or Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, which uh, the, the Bible writers and, and those who put together this hymnal and this kind of combination of a hymnal and the book of common prayer for the Israelites into this volume that we call the Psalms, that they added to that or placed first strategically, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And so it's very important, as we've said every week, that when you go to read the Psalms, a lot of us just pick one out, but it's important for us to read those in view of the introduction of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And so if you weren't here for those, um, I would encourage you to go back and, and to kind of help set you up for the text and context of what this sermon series is all about. Um, our pastoral team, our, pastor, our pastors, and our pastoral aim in teaching through the book of the Psalms in the summer is really um, for us as a group of people, um, as the people of Mission Church, is that the Lord would teach us to pray. Now that sounds really boring. It's always been said that if you want to see the faithfulness of the church is don't look on a Sunday morning, uh, don't necessarily look to Sunday school or to its small groups, but see how many people show up to the prayer meeting, because you will quickly see the numbers drop in participation, as many of us would even uh, obviously and often admit that those of us who are saved and who do follow Jesus, is that if even if we are Bible readers, and we have a, a healthy diet of scripture reading, if we were to compare even that to our uh, time in prayer, is that many of us would often say that we fall short. And so our pastoral prayer, our pastoral aim, is that through this series, is that we will be reminded every summer, and through these psalms, that, and, and, and learn how to actually pray. Uh, prayer is one of the most, if not the most important gift and practice for us as followers of Jesus. And yet, like I said, many of us struggle to be consistently engaging in a prayer. Prayer is communication with God. And oftentimes, what we see in prayer is the processing of our raw, real, authentic emotions before God. God gave us emotions. He is not scared off or unable to handle our emotion. And yet, how many times have you been praying with people and good old southern folk like us, especially if you grew up on the King James version, also known as the King Jimmy version, uh, of how often good southern folks would change their dialect when they begin to pray in front of other people. 
They start adding things like, Verily, verily, I saith unto thee, if lordeth, goddeth, right? We try to pretty it up, that there's some sort of perfect formula that, and, and, and oftentimes you ask people, it's like, man, will you pray for us? They're like, ah, I don't pray in front of people. Why? Because there's all this fear that can often swell up in front of us because we feel like there's, there's only certain people, oh, that brother, he can really pray, or that sister, man, she can really pray. And yet, when we come to the book of Psalm, we see that uh, there is this rawness of laying bare one's emotions before a holy God. God does not call us in our prayers to pretty it up in our language, but rather to come boldly before him, proclaiming in the most honest of language that we possibly can exactly how you and I feel in that given situation. Because even if you use flowery language, what does God know? He knows the intentions of your real heart. So the Psalms will teach us this tension of what it means to be bluntly honest with God about our thoughts and feelings, and yet not being enslaved and controlled by them. That we see that tension. We should not flip out when we hear other brothers and sisters be brutally honest about their feelings and emotions. Likewise, when we feel those ways, we shouldn't be. And yet, simultaneously, we're not to be enslaved and dictated and driven by these emotions, these feelings. Specifically today, my prayer is as we preach through this psalm, Psalm chapter 3, is that you and I would see Jesus but that we would also, in seeing Jesus, would learn how to honestly pray through our fears. Pray through our anxieties. And so pastorally, I hope that this will be beneficial to you. Now let's turn our attention back to the text. Now I want to teach us, we want to teach us, to be good Bible readers. Everybody look. At least pretend. Everybody look down like you're telling me, even if you don't have a Bible out in front of you, you're telling me that you're pretending like you're looking down. All right? Look down. Look at the Bible. Or pretend to look at the Bible. All right? Look down. Notice that in our Bible translations, there is uh, words that are in italics. Right? Save me, oh my God. That is in italics. Correct? Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. Not making this stuff up. And then below that, what do you see? You see a title. It's in all caps. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, two things really quickly about Bible reading. Is those words that are in italics, guess what they are not found in? The Hebrew text. They're not found in the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that they're wrong. They were put there by Bible translators and those who put the canon together of Scripture in order to help us to know what's coming. All right, But whenever you look into the, specifically the book of Psalm and you see um, in all capital letters there, not in italics, that title, guess what that means? It was divinely put there by the hand of God. That it is inspired word of God. 
It is found in the original Hebrew language, in the original Hebrew manuscripts. That title is placed there to help us know the text and context of why is this author writing this. Now, not all the Psalms have them, all right, but many of them do. And it's going to be extremely important for us to understand that title, to understand what is happening inside of this prayer, this song. Make sense? All right. So what does it tell us? A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. All right, so quick biography about David. All right, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if you've not grown up in church, you've probably heard something about this king named David, who was once a shepherd boy, um, who eventually went on to fight this giant, and he won with a slingshot. Everybody follow me? But that is not the only story of David. Yes, David was one of Jesse's sons, and Israel had a king. They had a king named Saul. Saul was tall, he was handsome, he was good-looking, he looked a lot like me. And then, but he began to be very disobedient toward God. And so God never wanted the people of God, the Israelites, to have a king, but the people kept saying, all the other kingdoms, they have a king. And so God was like, okay, and as a sign of discipline and to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you have a king. Let's see how that goes for you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it goes really, really bad for the people of Israel. And so in that, God says, okay, you've chosen Saul to be your king. I'm going to choose one. And so a prophet comes um, to these uh, this shepherds or these this group of shepherds, and the daddy was named Jesse. Jesse has lots of sons, and uh, he goes to them because God tells this prophet, "Hey, one of Jesse's sons is going to be the real, true king of Israel." And so if you've grown up in Sunday school or children's church, maybe you've heard this story before, but the prophet comes uh, to Jesse's sons, and Jesse lines them all out, and Jesse's like, oh, I know which one of my boys is going to be the king. He's the tall one. He's the good-looking one. He's a lot like Saul. And he goes through the line, and the prophet says, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. And he gets through all of the sons, and, and he comes back to Jesse, and he's like, this is really kind of confusing. I'm paraphrasing here, but... Um, he's like, do you, do you have any other sons that you didn't bring before me today? And Jesse is like, oh, yeah, I got like this redheaded, scrawny little rut. I didn't think, there's no way that he's the king, but he's, he's out in the shepherd. He's out shepherding because, you know, you, everybody needs one, one kid that like plays the harp and like takes care of the animals in your house. And so... The prophet says to Jesse, well, go, go get that one. So they go and they get Jesse, or excuse me, they get David. They bring him, and he says, eventually, this son, David, will be the king. All right? And so then you had the story that David and Goliath, he, all the Israelites are scared of the giant, Right? They're going to take over. The Philistines are going to take over the Israelites, God's chosen people. Saul won't even go out to battle. And then all of a sudden, David hears out in the fields that this battle is taking place. And Jesse sends David to go feed his brother some sandwiches and some chips. And he goes there and he just finds all of the Israelites not wanting to fight. And then this scrawny little teenager goes out to the brook. He picks up five stones, and he goes back to the battle. David comes out every day, send me your greatest of warriors, right? But no one would ever go. 
until this day when the shepherd boy, who would soon be the king, shows up. I mean, they don't make movies this good anymore. But if you remember, inside of that story, that David goes and fights Goliath. He fights the giant. But in that, he says, you know, people, uh, David screams out to this giant. And he screams out to them that, that, you know, uh, people are coming with this, and they're coming with these weapons, and they're coming with all this. But David was settled and courageous in the fact that he did not come in the name of anyone else, but he came in the name of the Lord. And if you remember that text, the Bible tells us that he says, it is on this day that the Lord will hand you over to me and to God's people. Remember that? It's this powerful scene of that, man, it is all about God. God will deliver his people. So David, right? Hits the guy in between the eyes, boom, drops him dead. David walks out there. I just imagine putting his, gets his sword and chops off his head. And then is like, hey, I got him, <laughs> Right? And, and all the Philistines, are, they're scared, they're running. And so you see this young man who is not filled with fear. Everyone else is filled with fear. But David is filled with the Spirit of God. His focus is singularly focused on the person and work of God. His character, his nature. He knows that within his ruddy little stealth that he has no power to defeat this giant, but that God Almighty does. Well, long story really short. David eventually becomes king. And he is loved by everyone. He is a phenomenal king. He's gifted in battle. He is gifted in uh, strategy. He is gifted in administration. They set up Jerusalem to be the holy city. All these great stories about David. But eventually... Guess what David does? Is David drifts. See, he used to be completely dependent upon God. He used to be solely about God and what God was about. But like many of us, we're prone to wonder, and, 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 and David is prone to wonder because, again, he is loved by everyone. He, he is powerful. He is this warrior. And instead of being completely dependent upon God, he begins to be completely dependent upon himself and his own giftedness. So then he begins to abuse power. So maybe you've heard the story of him seeing this beautiful naked woman uh, who was married to another man on top of a building one night, taking, giving herself a bath. And David sends uh, for her, and he impresses himself upon her, and she becomes pregnant. But she's married to one of his soldiers named Uriah. And so not only does David commit adultery, but he also has her husband murdered. David, by this point, somewhere in his ministry, somewhere in his role as king, he's drifted so far away from God that he begins to have multiple wives. Now, David loves his kids. But you ever seen a parent who says that they love their kids so much that they don't discipline them? Right? You, you have. Okay? You're just not one to 
You have seen that. They, they love them so much that they won't stay on them. Oh, it's funny what they're doing. No, no, it ain't funny, right? That's how David was toward his kids. He loved them so much. He loved them so much that he just let them run wild. He let them do whatever they wanted to do. And he had multiple wives and, and multiple uh, children from all of these different wives. And, and, and it just became this terrible thing and ultimately led to him being a terrible dad. By one of the wives, he had this son named Amnon. And Amnon fell, um, I won't say in love, he fell in lust toward his half-sister, Tamar. And in doing so, takes advantage of her. Physically. And Absalom, the other son, becomes so angry that his half-brother would abuse his sister like that, that Absalom kills Amnon. Well, even though he's a, a prince within the kingdom, David must discipline his son Absalom, whom he absolutely loves. I know we're not supposed to have favorites of kids, but Absalom, from all intents and purposes that we can see, is that he's David's favorite. So he does not want to, it's capital punishment, it is punishable by death. Even though what Amnon did was absolutely evil and wrong, also Absalom, what he did in taking justice into his own hand to kill his brother is equally as evil. And David should have killed him or had him killed in execution. But what does David do? Because he can't punish and discipline his kids. He just sends him off. Well, years pass. I promise I'm heading somewhere with this. Years pass. And David decides to let Absalom back into the kingdom. However, he's going to keep his distance. Absalom isn't welcome into the, into the you know, throne room or any of those sorts of things. He doesn't see his dad, but he's at least welcomed back into the city. And Absalom, who again is tall, dark, and handsome, and the Bible talks about his hair. Absalom was obsessed with his Fabio-type hair. The Bible even says that he would only cut it once a year, and that when he cut it off, it was somewhere, uh, the weight of his hair that was cut off was somewhere between three to five pounds. This dude had locks. He was obsessed with his beauty. He was obsessed with his power. And so what Absalom began to do, even though his daddy had let him back into the kingdom, Absalom wanted his daddy's throne. And so when people would come up to Absalom, they would often bow down. And to show an equality with the people in the kingdom, he would immediately lift them up and look them in the eyes. And the people shifted their love from David to Absalom. The people who once loved and revered their king now are looking to another. They're looking to David's son, Absalom. So what begins to take place is, is that Absalom 
gets thousands upon thousands of people and soldiers. And they begin to march toward David's palace in the city of Jerusalem. And David, with a small group of his faithful followers, the Bible will tell us, this is all found in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through about midway of chapter 17, is where you can read all about these stories is that, that David and his closest of, uh, of confidants, his closest of friends, that they, they begin to leave outside of the city. They, they head toward the Mount of Olives, and it says that they're doing so barefooted and, and with their hoods over there, and they're, they're, they're sneaking out of the kingdom because there's an army of Israelites headed by David's own beloved son that are coming to kill and to take over the kingdom. And so David flees. And you kind of get this image as he's walking away that he gets to the top of the Mount of Olives and he looks back and he sees the city. And he prays Psalm 3. David is outnumbered. David is being chased by the one and the ones that he loves. David is scared. And so we see in Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, let's read it again together. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Notice if you're taking notes, circle, underline, box in, shadow, whatever you do in your Bible, how many times he uses the word many. Oh Lord, how many are, 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 are my foes? It's believed that upwards to 12,000 soldiers were coming for David and his few merry men. The next line is, many are rising against me. He goes on in verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. All right, so we, we see here that, that David is experiencing immense fear. Physical threat, all right? A physical threat or physical fear is not a bad thing. It's actually a very healthy thing that God has given to us in the creation of human beings. Fear is a great thing, a great healthy thing, and there is a physical threat against his body. He is going to die. There are many soldiers who are after him. He is outnumbered. Healthy fear is a great thing, right? You're in the ocean, as many of you have been going to. And everybody's standing around. And then all of a sudden you see a huge black shadow that is not human in the water. It is healthy fear that causes you to do what? Oh, no, 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 not today, Jaws. I'm up and out of here. Right? It is fear that is placed inside of you to be careful when you're on a ladder. Right? Uh, one time we were coming back from family vacation and we were traveling through the middle of Atlanta. Uh, my sister, my dad, my mom, my mom was driving. My sister was up front. Me and my dad are in the back seat. He's getting a break from driving. And we're in five lanes of traffic in Marietta, Georgia, close to where the Braves used to play baseball. And we get in a wreck in the middle lane. Five car, six car pileup. 
We popped over this little hill. There was a vehicle changing a tire in the middle lane. They did not pull over. We pop over a hill, and my mom has to slide on her brakes. We're sliding, and as we're sliding, people are just nailing us in the back over and over and over again. Semi drives by. It's so close it rattles our vehicle. It's luckily that we did not die, but my mom got hurt that day. Welcome to our vacations. But that fear and protection is what causes us that when we see something like happening, when you experience a physical fear, then your natural thing is not like what happens in Scooby-Doo where everybody just goes, right? But real physical fear is, is that you act upon that. That's what happens when physical fear, and that's what's taking place with David, is that many people are coming against him. He's experiencing a real, clear, and present danger. You're walking through the woods and a grizzly bear is staring at you. Yeah, that's a real physical threat. Somebody pulls a gun on you. How do you respond? That's a physical threat, right? Um, we hear from the tornadoes, right? The, the, the cow sirens go off and what do smart people do? They respond in fear to that to go lie down in the bathtub or get into your safe house or, or your shelter or, or, or whatever, right? That, that, that is a good, healthy thing. And yes, there is this physical threat that is coming against David, but, but notice that there is something that is even deeper than that physical fear that is really unhealthy. Do you see that in the text? Fear has a deeper root that is extremely unhealthy. Notice there in verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Though the physical threat against David was real, there was a deeper threat against David, and it wasn't the physical soldiers coming to kill him and to overthrow his throne. The deeper threat against him was a spiritual questioning of his identity. Is there anything scarier than looking at a person and saying, you cannot be saved? Jesus will not save you. You are hopeless. You have gone way too far, David, for God Almighty to save you. You've had multiple wives. You've impregnated uh, Bathsheba. You're a terrible dad. God has left you. And who is saying that? Thousands upon thousands who used to proclaim, this is God's man, this is God's king, he has placed him in the throne, are now screaming out, there is no salvation for David. God's presence, God's favor, God's grace, God's mercy has left David. And so this physical fear is, does not compare to the actual anxiety that now David is experiencing. Anxiety is unhealthy fear. 
The verbal propaganda is what is causing David to be wrestling within this text. God is, God is finished with me. I have lost, they're saying, I've lost my salvation. God's, as we talked about in Psalm 1, God's blessing, his royal decree about me has, has been removed. And, and, and so who does that leave David to be now? If he's not saved, then who is he? If he's not God's chosen king, then, then who is he? If God's blessing is no longer found in him, then, then, then David is experiencing this great fear of anxiety, which is, is not like this active thing that you physically do when something scary happens, but it's the constant anticipation that something bad is going to happen to you. It is the worrying. It was interesting. My sister can, can amen this, no lie. For several years after our wreck in Atlanta, every time we would drive, we would hate to sit up front with my mama because she would see brake lights a mile ahead of us and she would give us the mama clothesline as she drove, right? Anytime she pumped a brake, it was to the throat. Judo chop, to the throat because she was trying to hold us back. Now again, there was no danger but because she had experienced something, really, it controlled her in the future. See, those who struggle with anxiety, it's not made up. It's rooted in something that really happened to them. But instead of it leading to an action, it is now leading to something that is forever holding them down and, and, and enslaving and paralyzing them at the assumption that since this bad thing happened in the past, then it's always going to happen to me. Every relationship is going to end up broken. Everyone's going to take advantage of me. Everyone is out to get me. Everyone will leave me. Every job I get, I will not be able to achieve. I will not get hired. All these sorts of things. Why? Because something in your past really did happen, but now it's completely controlling you. David is, is feeling this anxiety. Basic fear is a respond again to what can be seen, touched, experienced. Anxiety is fear of the unknown. When we feel anxiety, it can be hard to describe. Because if you say, what are you scared of? And the kid goes, well, there's, there's the boogeyman in the closet. Right? He's attributing something to that. It can be seen, touched, taste. But when someone is battling anxiety and you ask them, to put words, we can't. People who struggle with anxiety are, are fragile. We are vulnerable. We're confused. We can't even explain to you. We can be fine one moment and then, then literally be doing something that we love to do and completely be paralyzed. And you will see a shift even in our facial expressions as we go from, from often being this, oh, oh! What's wrong? I, I don't know. 
I just, I had this, this uneasiness. My, my heart is, is fluttering. I, I feel like something bad is going to happen. Psychologists refer to anxiety as the dread of death. It's the cartoon character that always has the rainy cloud over them. You like to call it melancholy. We like to call it anxiety. It could be physical death. It could be relational death. It could be the anticipation of great loss. This feeling of being paralyzed, this overwhelmingly disappointment with life, the long-time effects of failures, the anticipation and difficulty of knowing, man, if I don't have this, who am I? If I don't have this boyfriend, who am I? If I don't have this girlfriend, who am I? If I don't have this amount of money, who am I? If I don't have this job, then who am I? If I lose my wife, if I lose my husband, if I lose my boyfriend, if I lose my job, I'm going to be completely dismantled. Our expectations are not met. We did not achieve what we thought we would achieve. Our dreams have been shattered. Anxiety leaves us not knowing who we are. It, it leaves us not knowing our purpose in life or, or what we even believed it to be is all now in question. Anxiety is very controlling and it is extremely hard to, to come out of. And David is experiencing, yes, the physical fear that soldiers are coming, but even more so, if salvation has left me, if I am no longer God's chosen king, then David no longer knows who he is. What if I'm not king? I've been a terrible dad. God has left me and abandoned me because of my sin. And then at the end of verse 2, what do we see? We see this random word that is thrown out to the side that says like, see la or say la. It's, the exact meaning is not understood by Hebrew scholars and Jewish scholars and Christian scholars, but it's believed to be some sort of um, musical connotation that it's, it's kind of like what we do in between songs or you notice the music that is played before we move from like a verse to a chorus or a chorus to a verse. Those are strategically placed there, specifically in spiritual songs and hymns, because it's believed that the Selah was uh, something to allow people a moment of reprieve from, to think about and to consider what was just said. It is the taking of a deep breath. It is to make you think, man, what was just said? What is the seriousness of what has just been said? Many are coming to attack me. But even more so, thinking about the idea that salvation is no longer for me.
Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know if there is a passage in Scripture uh, that describes me more as an individual than what I've just read to you. There's so much that I could say about even my own story, my own struggles, and that from the time I was a very little boy that I've been a very fearful and rightfully so in some cases. I've had some just really terrible things happen to me. That have led to me as an adult to be completely paralyzed by anxiety. I have much empathy for you who are fellow strugglers like me. Because I, I know what it's believed to be like, people who you love that are going to abandon you. I know what that feels like. Because it's happened to me. And so the, that is real fear, because I've experienced it. And yet I've carried that into every single relationship that I'm in. Just give them enough time, they will leave too. physical harm, right? I had a bad experience on an airplane one time. Now, every time I get on an airplane, I'm anxious about it. Why? Because something really did physically happen. But does that mean it's going to happen every time? No, but that's what anxiety is. There have been times in my relationship with the Lord that Man, I felt like I've, man, I've sinned way too far for Jesus to save me. I've lost my salvation. I've disappointed him uh, too much. I have not been good enough. I've not uh, followed all of the commands enough. I've not been a good enough Pharisee, if you will, um, to check off all of the boxes. So God must have left me. If he wouldn't have left me, then all these bad things wouldn't continue to, to happen to me. Right? Oh, I sin, so that's why cash is the way that he is. And I know David's, to some degree, his feeling here. Man, there have definitely been seasons in my own life where I've been like, if Mission Church falls apart, who is Eric Baker if I'm no longer a pastor? Like, what do I even do? Just so you all know, doctorate degrees are not transferable to everywhere. Being a pastor doesn't look very good on a resume nowadays. If I wake up this Sunday morning and no one shows up, everybody just leaves Mission Church. So, man, I can so resonate with these first two verses, as I think upon them, as I say law. But notice that something changes 
in verse 3. David isn't hiding from his feelings. Oh, you need, to, you need to clean that up before you go to God. God can't handle your shaking your fist at him. Absolutely he can. There's lots of fist shaking in the book of Psalms. So David goes, though, from this like anxiety, fear-ridden man that is, is, is believing, man, all of that I am is gone. All that I am is lost. And then, verse 3, there is this word that I love seeing it throughout many passages in Scripture that is the word, but. But you, notice, many foes, many, 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 many. And he goes from plurality, but you. He goes from the plural to the singular. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head, I cried about aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. The first way that we can get up out of our anxiety and the, the doom and the dark night of the souls is, is to turn our attention, not to belittle our emotions, but turn our focus away from ourselves and look to God and his character. But you, O oh God, are a shield to me. You are a shield about me. Notice this isn't some plate-like shield, but it is rather something that is believed to be all-encompassing. Remember, um, we've seen this in movies, but these large shields, not just the round little circle on your arm, but this all-encompassing. Think of a uh, force field around me. Lord, you are a force field about me, meaning this, that you are covering everything about me. He shifts his focus from his enemies. He shifts his focus from himself, and he shifts his focus to God. The shield wrapped around David. But notice, what is a shield for? A shield is not something that is used in retreat. A shield is something that is used in obedience. A shield is something that you move forward with. If I have a shield on my arm and I turn to flee from the enemy, I just get shot in the back. David is saying, you are the shield in the midst of this battle. You are the commander-in-chief. You are the king. And I will follow you behind this shield that is your character and nature. A shield is moving forward, not retreating. David is saying that you are with me and you often lead me into danger. You lead me into battle. You lead me into places that are scary. You lead me into places that I'm going to get bruised and, and that I'm going to have rocks thrown at me. That you lead me into places where I am going to bleed. That, that you lead me not that you're trying to protect me. So many people come to Jesus and they think, oh man, life is just going to be so much easier. That all my problems are going to go away. No, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus, man, means that there is the front lines of the battle. And Lord Jesus, King Jesus, we will follow you into those places. Because you are our protector. 
See, brothers and sisters, it is better to be wounded in battle following after Jesus than to be safe in disobedience. And every one of you here in this room, myself included, are one of those two people. It is better to be wounded in battle following Jesus than it is to be safe in disobeying Jesus. I love what Pastor Tim Keller says. He says, if God lets you get hurt today, this is, this is quotable, this is tweetable, nothing I've said other than the Bible, but this, this is good. If God lets you get hurt today, it's because he's trying to save you from a greater hurt tomorrow. If God is letting you get hurt today, it is because he's trying to keep you from a much deeper hurt tomorrow. I recently told someone that I would have never chosen the, the life of being a dad with a kid with severe special needs. But where I'm at now, 18 years into this journey, is if I had to do this a million times over again, and that God had to use that in order to tether me to himself, then I would do it every single time. Every time. Because it is better to limp, to be wheeled into the wheelchair into heaven from being bruised and broken in battle while seeking to be obedience. than to go to hell perfectly fit in disobedience. David turns his attention from his enemies, from himself, to God. That, that even if you die in that battle, it is better to die obedient. It is better to die in the army of God it is, it is better to die being faithful because disobedience should not be an option for any of us who claim to follow after Jesus. He goes on here in this passage. He says, but you, O Lord, you are my shield, but you are also my glory. Hebrew word for glory means weighty or heavy. It's talking about significance, status, honor, wealth. Um, I, I like to think of the, the weight of gold compared to like other rocks and minerals. Uh, gold is so much heavier and so much more valuable. Glory is used to refer to someone of a high position. Though humans can have some level of glory, King David, when the scripture refers to the glory of God, it is a reflection of his ultimate honor worth, respect, and position as supreme ruler. Something of great significance. To glorify God is to say and to live in such a way that reflects that he is the most weighty, the most significant, the most important person in our lives and in the universe. And so when, when David says, you are my glory, what is that a statement of? See, David had drifted in finding his own glory in his position as king. David had drifted in finding his own glory in the power that he could wield over men and women to do what he said. And yet he says, I am not glorious, but you, 
our glory. David realizes his power, his throne, um, his kingdom, his lust has been his significance, has been his identity. And, And through praying through these fears, he is what? He is humbled. And, and David just didn't say or sing that God is enough or that Jesus is enough, but that he really believed it. If I lose it all, David is saying, my kingdom, my family, my identity, but I remain your son, then God, I am blessed. I am fulfilled. I am secure because my identity is not found in anything else but you and your glory, God. So if I'm not king, but I'm your son, blessed. If you don't get the job, but you're still his daughter, blessed. If a car wreck takes out your parents, but you're still his son and daughter, blessed. If you've had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage, but God sees you as son, decrees you as daughter, blessed are you. You are my glory. Notice what else he does here quickly is that it goes beyond just being his shield to being his identity, his glory, but he is the lifter of my head. As a person who's grown up most of the time, people used to make fun of the way that I would walk around our high school because I was often slumped over head down. When a king gets down on his knees... And he looks at the dropped head man or woman, his son, his daughter. And when you do that to your kid, aren't you saying, like, I got you? Lift your head up. Look at, look at daddy. Look, look at mama. Like, like, I'm here for you. Like, I'm the lifter of your head. Like, I, like I'm here. Salvation hasn't left you. My relationship hasn't left you. I'm, I'm here. I, I'm your shield. I'm your glory. I'm your protector. He, he's taken this broken, just mangled, emotional person, and, and he's saying, like, lift your head up. I am your courage. I am your significance. It goes back to what we see in the New Testament as, as Jesus is walking across the water. He looks at his disciples, right? He says, hey, hey, Peter. Come on out here, bro. Peter begins to to walk on the water, right? He's keeping his eyes on to Jesus, but the Bible tells us that that Peter begins to pay more attention to the wind and the waves around his feet, that he takes his eyes off of Jesus and that he begins to sink. David is reminding us even through the gospel. Keep your eyes on me. He says in this passage, I credit the Lord from this. He answered from his holy hill. What's the holy hill? It's the throne room of God. It is the city of Jerusalem. It is where the kingdom is established. And, and, and he's saying, I, I cried. And you can imagine David kind of looking back. And in the, in, in, in the distance there is God's holy city, the place where God dwelled, where the tabernacle was, where eventually the temple of God would be, where the mercy seat of God, where the physical presence of God would dwell in this place. And what happened? happens on God's holy hill? 
every day, every week. That's where sacrifice takes place. For the covering of sin. Can you imagine the joy that is swelling up in this fearful, anxious man as he thinks to the sacrifice for the covering as he remembers the gospel. The lamb has been slayed on God's holy hill. This praise, this acknowledgement leads to what we see in verse 5. If you've ever had anxiety or, 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 or battled with fear, you notice that sleep is difficult for you. And yet, what is David now able to do? He's overwhelmed. Soldiers are coming for him. But as he acknowledges God and his character, boom, David goes to sleep. He's able to find rest. And he's, he's startled that he awoke again, for the Lord had protected him. The Lord had sustained him. I will not be afraid of the many of thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around as it was once said, go to sleep in peace, brothers and sisters, for our God is awake. He goes on here in Psalm 3, 7. It's not that his emotions have left him, but rather where he's attributing the fact which is greater than the way he currently feels. In verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Now that seems very startling to us, doesn't it? The way that I like to look at this verse is that ultimately that David may be saying because it's really hard to talk bad about somebody when the fist of God is in your mouth. As my mama used to pray, as I would be bullied often in school, that the Lord would shut the lion's mouths. So David prays, Lord, you take care of this problem. Your justice be done. You take care of this. Not to ruin the story for you, but that's exactly what God eventually does. David does not want Absalom to be killed. He wants no one. He wants his armies to go after Absalom, to capture Absalom, and I believe in hopes of reconciling with his son. But the Bible will tell us in Samuel that guess what happens to Samuel? None of that beautiful hair that he has. He's riding off into battle, and he goes under some low trees, and his beautiful mane gets caught in some branches and hangs him there before the Israelites. And one of David's soldiers walks up and jabs a spear or a knife into him like two or three times and kills Absalom. In pride, that warrior comes back to David's throne room and tells David what's happened to his son Absalom. And the Bible says that David is wrought with grief over someone killing his son. And he even says, oh, Absalom, that I could have died for you, his enemy. What a picture of Jesus. 
are you David? Yeah, there's probably some inclinations, some, some shadows of you and I being David in this story, but you know who else we are? Absalom. Wanting the throne room of God. And yet Jesus does fulfill that as he dies for his enemies. In conclusion here, he will say here in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Notice, he wants God to bring his justice, but simultaneously, what is he wanting God? He shifts from a singular focus upon himself to once again thinking about the blessings of of the nation, of the people. Salvation belongs to the God. Yes, I, I, I want you, God, to bring your justice to protect, to reestablish your broken kingdom. And, I, and I, I, yet, I want you to bless the people of God. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. David isn't just thinking about his power, his own throne, but he is thinking about the benefits of the blessings of God. So even in the midst of this running, even in the midst of this hiding out, even in the midst of this great anxiety, that, that David wants God's hand of blessing to once again be on all of the people, even his enemies. Isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that in the New Testament we see Jesus walk this same path that David has just left from the city? that on the night before that Jesus would go to the cross, that he walks the same road and up to the Mount of Olives. And there, Jesus would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because Jesus is scared. Many are the foes that were around Jesus. Those whom he loved are now portraying him. They will run from him. The Bible will tell us that inside the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus was so filled with anxiety and fear about the physical death, yes, but, but the, about the, the spiritual death that was about to transpire inside of his life that he begins to be so fearful and so scared of about what was about to happen to him that he began to sweat great drops of blood. That is scared. And he prays honestly, Lord, if there is any other way, let this cup path pass from me. But if not, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. What is he saying? You are my protector. You are my shield. Lord Jesus, I will, or God Almighty, I will follow you into this battle. I will do whatever it takes, even if it costs me my life. And it did. And Jesus, in the Bible, sometimes the word sleep is in reference to death. And Jesus, friends, went to sleep. Jesus died. And he woke again. For the Lord had sustained him. And what does the word Jesus mean? It's essentially like the Greek translation of the Old Testament name Joshua. 
And what does Joshua mean? Salvation is the Lord's. Literally in the Hebrew, I think right here, it actually says, Joshua, your blessing be on your people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus is our salvation. He is the one who is filled with perfect love that casts out all fear. And that's why you and I can sing songs that are reflective of what we read inside of the book of Job. Though you slay me, yet I will follow you. Though you ruin me, yet I will praise you. Brothers and sisters who are fellow fearful, anxiety-ridden people like one of your pastors, like me. God can handle your honesty. He can handle your blunt language. He can handle the shaking of your fist. But he calls you not to remain there. But once you've gotten all of that out of your system and the smoke dies down and when you can see a little bit clearly you're going to see him. He has never left you. He has never forsaken you. Your identity is in nothing else other than in being his son and being his daughter. So be honest. Be honest with others. And look to Jesus, who walked a fearful path. But was faithful. And now his faithfulness has been placed into your account. Let us pray.